Hey y'all, Michael here. Uh, really excited for this week's episode. We're going to be talking with Sarah Archer, a professional author who wrote a really, really good book and is here to talk to us about a really bad one. Uh, but before we get to Christian romance novels about billionaire cowboys, we had to drop in an extra segment this week just to take a second and pour one out for a real one. So thanks so much for tuning in. This is Shitty Christians. Michael, how's it going? Uh, how even to answer that question? I gotta say, like, I got the text that Bernie had dropped out uh, Wednesday morning, standing in the Santa Monica farmer's market, waiting to get some kale. With your fellow glass traders? <laughs> uh, with the five other people they let in at any given time, <laughs> as we all just sort of pointed at each other to maintain social distancing. <laughs> Uh, no, it, it I it was really weird to get choked up uh, yeah. just in, in the middle of this like already truly uncanny space, having a moment, you know, pouring one out for a real one. Just had a little kombucha there. Just... <laughs> and then a cop came by and told you stop pouring things out in the street. You were violating <laughs> yeah. several civil ordinances. <laughs> uh, but he couldn't arrest me because he can't get close enough to me to do it. So yeah, to bring this back around, uh, we are recording a special segment of the podcast in memoriam of the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign, which ended as of this recording yesterday morning. Yes. So Bernie, I watched, I he, he's only done one interview since, I think, uh, with Stephen Colbert. Is that right? Yeah, at least, I mean, that was the first one he did. Okay. He, he went on Colbert and, you know, Stephen asked him why he was dropping out now. And, and his response was, of course, erudite. And kind, you know, that there wasn't really a mathematical way forward. But beyond that, that him remaining in the race, not being able to hold rallies, he couldn't in good conscience continue with the pandemic. Yeah. Because there was no way to get out the vote. There was no way to energize a base. And so there was there was no real point to it. And he didn't want to be responsible in any or culpable in any way for people getting infected with Corona. And especially after Wisconsin, you you can see why. Yeah, when you have a conservative-led Supreme Court overriding it, like calling an emergency session to override a governor's decision to try to protect its, his people, uh, when they made it very clear that like, no, 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 we will let people die for this. That is one of, it's one of the craziest things. You had a Republican governor in Ohio being willing to delay the primary, and they tried to in Wisconsin. And the fact that like both the DNC and conservative justices kept a primary going on, reduced the number of polling stations, and told people to go vote. Yeah, it, it's it's frankly abhorrent, and there's no way to really view it as anything but illegitimate. Like, the New York Times, in its live blog for the primary, had as one of the headings, like, well, it's, it seems difficult to view this as legitimate. Like, that's incredible. It, what's incredible is it took him this long to get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of things that are illegitimate, but so, we can we I, we're not gonna try to walk through. I think all of the 
horrific mistreatment of Bernie Sanders across this campaign. We've railed against it before. I mean, it's that, all true. That would take a, that would be season four of Serial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, we'll just and be. And I like... look forward to tuning in. I'll subscribe <laughs> to Stitcher Premium for that, motherfuckers. <laughs> uh, Only forty nine ninety nine a month 20 percent bi-weekly i don't i don't know how it works <laughs> yeah, it's it's charged every blood moon <laughs> but uh but i think we kind of want to focus a little bit more on the positives here but yeah just who was bernie sanders what did he mean to us personally what did he mean to america why are we so sad and maybe just have a moment. Uh, you know, this is a time of mourning. Mm -hmm. Zach and I are both in sackcloth and ashes right now. Uh, I have been rending garments all day, which let me tell you, when you're supposed to be wearing garments and masks, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it, it's essentially at this point kind of a sad strip tease for you. <laughs> yeah. You just keep rending garments, but you can't stop it from being sexy. It's the worst Showgirls reboot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how is his entire body a Merkin? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's a joke for four people. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's sad. I'm sad. How are you? You know, I, I obviously sad. And and I, I think I kind of vacillate between angry, sad, and just sort of vaguely... I'm not indifferent, but just sort of, like, feel like I'm going to care a lot less about po politics for the next six or so months. Mm, interesting. I, I feel a little bit like, well, I don't really care. Mm. Like, Trump, Biden... Uh, I, I, we're not going to talk about it now. I think we should do a segment at some point about who to vote for, whether we're going to vote, all that jazz. But it's it's too early to even consider that. I, yeah, the only thing I have to say about that right now is do not let these motherfuckers bully you oh, into no. thinking that yeah. you are somehow morally like responsible for voting a, a, a rapist into the White House. They like, will like point to the kids in cages and try to make you vote, but just to ask them who built the cages who and built then walk the fucking, the fucking cages, away. Who built the Clarence Thomas? Like <laughs> we don't have to get into it. Just it's nonstop. It's I've already seen it. I've been it blocking from, haters on Twitter. I have seen it from literally dozens of Facebook friends and I already have a cura curated Facebook And you page. only have dozens of Facebook <laughs> yeah, friends. Yeah. It's, not, it's everyone. And I am very lonely. <laughs> <laughs> they fucked around. Now they get yeah. to find out. That's it for now. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I just kind of, I do sort of, and, and this is, I'm going to actually throw some props here to uh, Matt Christman here. I think he articulated this a little bit well, is that like, I just, I also kind of feel kind of vaguely like shrug emoji. Like, a little bit like, I'm really sad, but also, yeah. like, this no longer concerns me. This is, yeah. like, these 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 national level affairs, they have decided to pick between two senile rapists, racists, and, but to, and both of whom are essentially Republic, different brands of Republicans. Sure, it's like, yeah. I, I, I don't have to care about that. Like, whether I vote for Biden or not, I don't have to care. Yeah, you, you can't force me to see this as a matter of moral urgency at this point. Yeah, you I'm not going to make calls. That chance. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to make calls. I'm not going to go volunteer. I'm not going to give money to the campaign. And all you motherfuckers that are telling us that we need to do this shit, like you better be doing that stuff because we're not going to. I, I'm sad, but you know, I I also I I am I am grateful to Bernie. I miss yeah. him. I wonder what he's doing right now. I wish he would respond to my texts. But I I hope he's just taking a day or two off. But I I'm, I'm really grateful to Bernie for the movement he created, and for really helping me out of being a dumb lib. Yeah, I I think both of us came pretty late to this whole leftist yeah, thing. Later I know, than I would have liked to have. Yeah, yeah, embarrassingly late, frankly. Like, I... 
cared about Bernie mm -hmm. in 2015. I wasn't making phone calls. Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing canvassing. I wasn't doing the work that we did this time around. And it wasn't until in the wake of 2016 when I was really angry uh, <laughs> about how all this shit turned out mm -hmm. that my eyes were opened and I realized that, you know, Bush did 9-11. <laughs> With the Israelis, yeah. get it right. <laughs> no, uh, Bernie Sanders taught me not parody, not in the game. <laughs> Bernie Sanders taught me how to give a shit. Like, yeah. uh, I, there's going to be a lot of debate over, you know, what Bernie Sanders means mm -hmm. for America sure. over the next couple weeks as if mm -hmm. that was a thing that could be delineated in 15 <laughs> Atlantic articles or whatever the fuck. Well, three uh, by David Fromm. All, yeah, about, yeah. all about how Bernie shouldn't have supported the Iraq war exactly. somehow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but to me, he uh, he really was an eye-opener. and yeah. And... And I think one of the amazing things about Bernie is that none of that shit dies with the end of his candidacy because it was never really about him to begin with. Mm -hmm. Like, Bernie's great. I love Bernie. I, lo I love my angry grandpa. He's the best angry grandpa. <laughs> uh, he's the only angry grandpa that's yelling about race the right way. <laughs> and I will always appreciate him for that. But this fight continues. And yeah. He's, he did an amazing job of not making it about him. Uh, I, they maybe found a slogan for that by the end. I don't remember it, though. Similarly, I remember talking after the 16 election with you specifically being like, so the libs suck, mm -hmm. but obviously Republicans are death eaters. So, like, cool. I guess we just, yeah. like, I guess we're just dudes hanging out. Like, yeah, yeah. I had, because I'm a terrible person, already read Marx. To a certain extent in school and kind of... No, no, no. You're not a terrible person for reading Marx. You're a terrible person for going thousands upon thousands of dollars into debt to force <laughs> you to read Marx. I think Marx would appreciate the irony. Uh, but, you know, I, I read Marx and, and it spoke to me. And things like universal health care had been a thing I'd cared about for years and years and years and years. But it, I'd never quite understood the full scope of class conflict and consciousness and the yep. full breakdown of capitalism. And, and it's... It's easy for that to become the only angle through which you view the world. There are other things. But I, I think when you view the United States government, when you view policy, there's almost no other lens that makes sense. And I think Bernie, for me, and, and frankly, a lot of the rest of the other leftist movement, really helped me understand that our po the, what's, what was wrong with our politics and what could be better. And so... You know, a Jackman had a great article talking about how in the 90s, Joe Rogan was on Bill Maher mm -hmm. and a crank socialist went on and they just yelled at him. And then 20 years later, Joe Rogan would endorse Bernie Sanders and, for the and same his ideas. candidacy. <laughs> <laughs> Please. It was an inside job. <laughs> but like, I... I, I find that like truly heartening that like, and, and I, I know I don't want to be moral victory guy. This is a loss, but I also think like this is real progress. And, and I think when I, I have libertarian friends, I know we both have different libertarian friends who have responded to Bernie's ideas. These are people who hate the idea of big government and they, I have, I have been reached out to, I have seen in my social media, I've had long conversations with people who I disagree with immensely about politics stuff. People I've had grievances with in the past, but who have told me and expressed support for Bernie because they see him as an authentic person who wants to make people's lives better. It crosses ideological divide, how consistent and sincere mm -hmm. and guileless so yeah. much of Bernie's campaign was. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the best 
asshole. He was our asshole. And I, I, I will miss him dearly. But uh, but nothing ends now. Literally he's, nothing. He's going except... to be yelling in the Senate every <laughs> well, yeah, single but, day. But also, like, <laughs> Bernie's gone. That's fine. Yeah, that's right. uh, because we learned the lessons we needed to learn, and we will figure out new ways to fight. So there's two questions I have, okay. and we're not going to fully answer these today. Again, I'm busy rending garments. I don't have time to think through Michael, all Michael, we're running out of cloth in the house. <laughs> uh, my wife sews. I am buried in cloth. There is, <laughs> there, I will never run out of cloth. <laughs> Will I be in a lot of trouble for rending it? Sure. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, like, look at this uh, Egyptian cotton linen that I am rending. And uh, then it's she's definitely like... not. In my case, it would be like naturally dyed, handcrafted, lovingly knitted together by porcupines linen. Like, <laughs> free range porcupines. Anyways, t- two questions. I yes. Have. What did we learn? Mm-hmm. And where do we go? I think for me, what we learned, the things that Bernie stood for, people wanted. Uh, and I think that is immensely valuable. I think a lot of the coverage I've seen has focused on how like Bernie sort of activated the American imagination about what politics could be. And that is personally true for us because now we're building Molotov cocktails. So like Bernie did that for us. Uh, but for, I actually, I think it's actually not that hard to convince people that their self-interest is at stake here. And to point out that something like Medicare for all manages to cross class and ideological boundaries and connect with people. I I think that part was easy. I've I've said that before. Medicare for all, especially I am able to pitch to people of any ideological spectrum in this country. And the only spectrum I cannot pitch that to is rich. Yep. But that's, but that's it. But like poor libertarians, poor Republicans, you point to Canada, you point to great Britain it's easy to say these countries have right-wing or center-right governments and they still manage to do this for their citizens. It's it's incredibly persuasive and and I think uh that is that his platform like you said is is particularly yeah. in that level very very good. There are nuanced things about how Bernie campaign that should and and will be critiqued because I think it's important to learn from our mistakes. Sure. But on a whole his message carried a man who <laughs> Had no support anywhere uh, to nearly the presidency. That's right. Now, as far as where we go, uh, I think that is maybe the more challenging question. I think for me, this whole process has sort of answered a question I've had for a while about electoral politics and the role of electoral politics in uh, radical movements. And I think... I think we have to acknowledge that what we got beat on ultimately was not ideology, but institutions that we lost because we could not combat the collective power of a political establishment and of of a corporate owned media. And in order to do those things, I think maybe the most important thing that we can do right now is work on building our own institutions. How do we create a labor movement in America that which has done when it is powerful has done so many great things and has been sorely lacking in our sort of Reagan deconstruction of the New Deal. Uh, and that work is a lot less glamorous than a presidential run. It's not sexy. Like, it's going to take too long, frankly, to to build that thing. Uh, but right now, that's what I think we have. And I don't really know how else to answer that question. So start a fucking union. Fire your boss. Get in there. I think for me, that's where this fight goes now.
Uh, so with that said, we're going to finish up this segment, and we will be back in just a moment to talk with Sarah Archer about Christian romance novels and a lot of other bullshit. Stay with us. Welcome to this week's episode of Shitty Christians. I'm your host, Zachary Allard. I'm Michael Tabor. And today we are here with novelist, author, and general badass, Sarah Archer. Sarah, welcome to the pod. Hello, thanks for having me on. Very happy to have you with us. Uh, Sarah's going to be talking about a little bit about her life as a creative uh, out there in the world doing creative things. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk about a very special Christian romance novel that she picked out for us. Zach, what's the title of that? Rhett's Make-Believe Marriage, Christmas Brides for Billionaire Brothers, Seven Sons Ranch and Three Rivers, Romance, Book One. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Fiona Apple's out, like, first record. Like, it's just, you know, it takes a while. But once you get into it, it really starts to go somewhere. Uh, I've got posters of both on my wall. <laughs> uh, so let's, uh, I, I'm, Sarah and I went to college together. We've traded writing back and forth for years. But Sarah, you're from North Carolina, like the rest of us. Tell us. And we grew up, Michael and I, in the sort of crazed recesses of the SBC. My dad was a pastor. Michael was a ward of the state. <laughs> Sarah, tell us a little bit about your experience growing up in or near the church. Yeah, so I grew up um, in the church, but I guess I would say kind of like with one foot in and one foot out. I mean, I did grow up in North Carolina. I grew up in the South. Um, we went to church and it was a Southern Baptist church, but I didn't start going to church until I was, I think I was seven and my sister was nine. Um, so it wasn't like something that we did from our earliest years. And when we went, it was just my mom and my sister and I, my dad didn't go. So it was kind of like the semi-religious semi household, if that makes sense. Um, we were raised in a religious household, but we weren't like beaten over the head with it. <laughs> um, and so, I don't know, I think that's also kind of related just to the community that I grew up in in general. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, so it's the South, but it's kind of the New South. Um, it's sort of a purple area, like my, my parents were Republican, but most of the people I knew at school were Democrats. Um, it's a very kind of hyper-educated area. I think it has like the highest concentration of PhDs anywhere in the country, um, at last that I heard. And so it's sort of this weird mixture of influences where you're in the South, but there's also like people there who are transplants from all over the country and other, um, other countries too. So I don't know, I, like I grew up in that kind of Bible Belt atmosphere but i also grew up in like an artsy intellectual liberal and it ruined you like it did time. all of us <laughs> <laughs> it kind of means that you're stuck in between i guess <laughs> like i never felt totally at home in either world did you go to youth group let's start i think that's the <laughs> obvious next question right it was like i think it's key because like there's there's the people who go to church just on sunday which is what we did like you go to church you go to sunday school you leave and we would very rarely go to other church events or, or stuff like that. But like, I didn't do youth group. I didn't do VBS. I didn't do camp. Like 
my my social life was much more at school than at church. So church was kind of like you just stop in, you go, and then you go home. <laughs> so it's a very different kind of upbringing than the ones who are like there every day of the week. That sounds so nice. <laughs> I, I know. I'm just I'm just I'm listening to this feeling tremendous envy. <laughs> well, I I also think just. I didn't really feel at home socially in my church. Like I got along, not that I like didn't like people I went to church with, but they were. Sarah was out there yelling at people. Yeah. She was she she was like wearing her Planned Parenthood hoodie at church. <laughs> no, I just I don't know. Like the the schools that I went to, at least for um, middle and high school, were very uh, like very diverse student populations. A lot of really kind of artsy kids. Um, very sort of rigorous academically. And so it was this sort of like nerd power environment. And I felt more at home there, whereas church people were just kind of normal. <laughs> and I didn't really know what to do with that. Like it's just sort of these nice <laughs> white suburban people in, in North Raleigh. And so I don't know, I just, I always felt more at home in like my weird group at school. Hey, look, Sarah, I know you had a good education, but I learned at my high school <laughs> that dinosaurs were hanging out a few thousand years ago and there were actual dragons if you like read the certain books if you, that if you read certain legends in china okay that was cool and jesus that was, like that slayed was the dinosaurs like what is it steven slaying the dragon or something <laughs> that's right exactly now here's the real question did you go to cotillion because that's the real measure of a southern person oh wow uh did you go to cotillion yeah. is my oh, question yeah, of course <laughs> But Sarah, you need to explain to us and our listeners, what's a cotillion? Yeah. Cotillion is basically this um, institution where you take kids who, I think you start around age 10 and go for like four or five years, and you teach them like ballroom dancing <laughs> and how to set a formal table with a fish fork and like how <laughs> a gentleman escorts a lady in and out of her chair. You know, like things that 12-year-olds need to know in the 21st century. This explains all my problems with women. Yeah, you just, you need to know like how to stand next to them and how to hold your arm out properly. That's, that's really all it is. How many dates, Zach, have you been on where this, the lady was like, this motherfucker doesn't know shit about fish forks. <laughs> I've lost count at this point. Yeah, so Cotillion is like, I don't know if it's everywhere in the South. I feel like it's kind of a, a middle and upper middle class thing. Um, it's people who are a little bit hoity-toity, like trying to tell themselves that they're being well-mannered, <laughs> but it's really just a bunch of like middle schoolers being middle schoolers and some poor adult trying to wrangle them for an hour and get them to do ballroom dances. It feels like a vestigial thing from the more like mm -hmm. uh, pre-Civil War era South. Like it, it, there, there's just something very plantation house about it. Yeah, yeah, it goes way back. And I mean, I'm all for teaching kids etiquette, but it's just it's not stuff that ever, ever applies in real life. Like I've never used <laughs> any of my cotillion knowledge in the real world. But, you know, we, we got to do ballroom dances to sync songs for like four years. So that was fun. <laughs> Wait, so Cotillion had in sync? What the fuck? I can't believe I missed that kind of time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this was just, I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but with the instructors that we had, they always played like in sync, Backstreet Boys. Like they wanted to do like the contemporary music. So you're doing these, you know, 200 year old dances, <laughs> but it's to like the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> and then we would always spend like 15 minutes doing the electric slide because they just kind of ran out of things to do with us. <laughs> and so we just did that over and over again. <laughs> so I'm very good at the electric slide, if nothing else. <laughs> 
It was all worth it. Just like the antebellum South. <laughs> uh, I love that you went to the like Breaking Bad cotillion. The cotillion's like, we're going to mix things up. <laughs> here. Uh, it makes me, and we may cut this, but it makes me think of a favorite more than anything else when they are like crumping oh, yeah. to that like... Yeah to medieval tunes. It's exactly like that, but imagine everyone is like 11 years old and the girls are all a foot higher than the guys and it's just a mess. <laughs> hey, hey, look, listen, some of us never grow out of that. I want to be clear, that's okay. That is okay. But hopefully you at least grow out of the middle school mentality, which is like, you know, holding forth at that point. <laughs> I, I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't even know yeah. how to transition out of that. Uh, so you went to Cotillion, blah blah blah. Um, do your parent? Does your family still go to church? <laughs> Put her family on black. No, I'm just curious. We definitely went more when I was a kid than now, and even for me, frankly, like I I've gotten really bad about it as an adult. Which part of that is just because I've moved around a lot. Um, like for the past few years, I've lived in a bunch of different states, different countries. And so I haven't really been in one place long enough to find like a good church community. Um, but the place I'm in now, I've been here for, I don't know, like eight or nine months. And I've only been to church once, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not good. I've, I've listened to like online sermons more than that. Um, but I don't know. I tried going to like, I think it was a Lutheran church that's close to me. And it mm -hmm. was just very like... I'm, I'm a very kind of stiff Caucasian person. <laughs> Even for me, this was <laughs> extremely stiff and extremely Caucasian. And there were just like all these different sort of rituals I didn't quite know how to do because I'd never been to a church like that mm -hmm. before. Like they had um, these benches that you pull out in front of you that you're supposed to kneel mm -hmm. on to yeah. pray, which I'd never seen before. So I didn't really know what was going on. And like I was trying to pull my bench out and I couldn't get it out, <laughs> which was a mess. <laughs> and then, like, for I'm sorry, Sarah, that means you're going to hell now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I failed the test. And then like yeah. for communion, they had um, this whole system where you like go up and, and everyone kind of files into different lines and I got in the wrong line and I was like trying to get out of it. And <laughs> she, she got in the Satan line. Little known fact, there's a Satan line. I guess there's like the, the good person line, the bad person line. I was in the wrong one. I don't know. It was like a comedy of errors the whole time. So I'm kind of ashamed to come back. But maybe I could try like another church in the area. There, are, I'm in North Carolina, so there are plenty of options. <laughs> Yes, an unending parade of churches. <laughs> we don't have much else, but we have churches. <laughs> but it is funny having spent some time in Lutheran churches myself when you first go, because there are some places where they hold the cup out and you are supposed to drink out of it just as much as everyone else is. You all drink out of one cup. And that's how Corona got started, I'm pretty sure. Probably. Even the ones where they like give you the bread and you dip it in the cup, like I, I guess that's sanitary, but even that seems a little bit strange to me. I wish that was the sketchiest thing about most churches. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> if that's your only complaint, then you're doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah. You just need to make sure you get in there before Dave, because Dave likes to get his fingers all up in that cup. Just dunks Ooh. it, whole hand in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that, that got me a little bit. That was the disgusting image so far of the day uh let's move let's move a little bit forward so you had this normal upbringing and then you moved to la where you worked for a while in hollywood and came and became a professional writer was it strange entering the hellmouth? um not 
really? <laughs> I feel like I kind of, <laughs> I, well, again, because like I grew up around, most of the time I spent was with people at school who were like, you know, liberal people who were really artsy, really creative. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of that same type of person in LA and in Hollywood. And so it didn't feel that out of line to me. It was kind of what I was used to. Um, but it is, I think, like growing up in North Carolina, not everyone is Christian, but it's, it's pretty normal. Um, and so it's normal to like talk about going to church or to, you know, say grace before you eat at a restaurant or something. And that's definitely not as much of the norm in L.A. Um, and I remember like when I first moved to L.A., I would say y'all and stuff and people would like make fun of me for it. <laughs> so I did become oh, kind of self-conscious no. about just being a Southerner, even though I had never really felt that Southern before. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I have friends in L.A. who are not just not religious themselves, but like very actively kind of anti-religion, um, which is not something that I encountered as much growing up in the South. And so it did make me a little bit more self-conscious about just not wanting to deny my religion, but not bringing it up, I guess, because it's easier just to not not bring it up, not cause any tension. So I did let it kind of fade into the background a little bit. Wow. This, well, this is an intervention. So <laughs> before the rooster crows three times, yes. so. <laughs> your podcast will be broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think uh, a lot of that is probably just in my head. I mean, I think there are people in Hollywood who are like anti, anti-religion, anti-Christianity and pretty vehement about that, but it's not rampant. Um, and I remember one time I was out at breakfast with my boss at the time who was um, uh, he's like a very successful producer in Hollywood, you know, big name mainstream producer. And it was like my, my annual review at the end of my first year. So we went out to breakfast together and our food came. And normally if I'm like out at a restaurant with someone who's, you know, a friend or it's a business meeting or something, I don't say grace cause I feel kind of weird about it. Um, so I wasn't going to say grace, but he stopped and said grace before we ate. And so I was kind of like, oh, am I, am I just building this up in my head that it's like going to weird people out if I'm praying in public or something? Is this just my own insecurity and everyone else is fine with it? So I don't know. A lot of it might just be me and, and kind of working things up inside my own head. Is this the story about how Sarah became the very anti-religious bigot she was worried about? <laughs> <laughs> I woke up one day and I was them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've also spent some time in the publishing world. Is that different, better, the same, even interesting to talk about? Yeah, I think, for, I mean, my experience in it so far is still pretty limited because um, I've only had one book come out. So I'm still kind of learning the ropes here. But so far, the same sort of mentality holds true that it's like there's there are Christian books marketed to a Christian audience and then there's everything else um, and you can't really do anything in between. And they're very clear about the marketing of like, if it's going to be marketed to a Christian audience, that has to be very clear cut. Um, like mm-hmm. I know when when I was getting my author photos taken for my book, I so I have this mm-hmm. necklace with a cross on it that I wear sometimes that like my grandma gave me when I was a kid. And I was wearing it the day that I got my photos taken, not because not I was like intentionally wanting it to be in the photos, I just happened to be wearing it. And when I sent the final photo to my publisher, they were like, oh, this is great, but we, we can't have a cross necklace on. So the, the graphics department of publisher literally photoshopped the necklace out of the picture because <laughs> they were like, we oh want to send a mixed message. We don't want people to think that you're a Christian writer, which it's such a small thing. Like who's going to look at my author photo and, and notice this little necklace and care and be like, oh, well, 
she's got a cross on, so this book isn't for me. But they're they're very <laughs> stringent about like that line can't be crossed. That is a really fascinating anecdote. Yeah, it's um I think it just goes to show how intent they are on the marketing has to line up with a certain mm-hmm. vision and just almost like a fear of like audiences being turned off by something that doesn't fit their worldview. It's fascinating. The the marketing side of the business feels a little bit like the tail wagging the dog. Like that definitely, you know, it definitely is the thing that's making the decisions. Zachary, let me introduce you to capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's totally true. And I think in a way it it almost feels condescending to audiences because I think so many people are, um, they're interested in different things and in different viewpoints and they don't want to just read things that feel like uh, something that you've seen before or something that fits a narrow category. Um, so it's not really giving audiences the benefit of the doubt if you assume that they have to know exactly what they're going into or they uh, have to read something that kind of follows a certain pattern or watch something or listen to something. But yeah, totally. at the same time, I understand like from a marketing perspective, there are certain realities about the way that things are packaged and sold and you, it's just too difficult to break out of those. Can I interest you in Avengers 30? <laughs> if you liked 1 through 29, you might be interested in number 30. <laughs> it's so true. And it's so funny that like we can talk about anything on this podcast and it comes back to capital. Mm-hmm. Well, that drives culture, you know? That's at the heart of everything. Damn. Honestly, I feel like this is our final episode. Sarah, just sum- <laughs> Sarah sums it up. That was the thesis. We're done. Yeah. Okay. Th- thank you. This has been our final episode. <laughs> it's been fun. week we decided for uh, our always ongoing reading series to encounter something called a Christian romance novel. None of us had ever read one before and so Sarah found us Rhett's Make Believe Marriage. I'm not going to read the whole title every time. (laughs) Yes you are. (laughs) (laughs) And Sarah do you want to tell us a little bit about this book and what what made you? Yeah uh... how'd you find this masterpiece? (laughs) I to be honest, I was pretty lazy. I Googled Christian, <laughs> Christian romances. I went on Amazon, and this one was, I think, the first one that popped up. It's the um, the number one bestseller in inspirational spiritual fiction. So sure. it was pretty easy to find, but I read the title, and I was, I mean, how could I not read this? <laughs> how could That's I look incredible. any further? Yeah, no. When you know, you know, as we find <laughs> out. <laughs> Uh, shitty Christians, that's what we're gunning for. We want to be the number one in inspirational <laughs> spiritual fiction. <laughs> We've got one of those rights. <laughs> so, Michael, what is this story about? Well, I think before we get there, we should maybe okay. talk about, like, we've been talking a lot yeah, about yeah. parallel cultures and sort of, and, like, I think it's maybe never more apparent than in a Christian romance novel. Like, this is a huge industry, as I understand it, mm-hmm. um, because... Romance novels are wildly popular. It's basically the only books anyone reads anymore. And on top of that, like, romance novels, uh, of all the media that people can encounter, romance novels tend to be a little uh, how, how, a little, little breathy, um, <laughs> shall we say? And so this is just a wildly popular industry of just taking all of those same tropes and throwing just a bit, just a smidge of Jesus in there 
And uh, it, it was really remarkable to watch. Like, there are maybe like five moments in this entire book where God gets mentioned. So we're in a we're in a small town in the panhandle of Texas, 17,000 people, cattle ranches as far as the eye can see. And we meet Evelyn. And Evelyn in this town of 17,000 folks is a matchmaker. And Evelyn's business has gone downhill. It should be noted that Evelyn is also not the only matchmaker in this small town. <laughs> like, apparently this town can support three or four full-time matchmakers. <laughs> she's not even the... She's noted in the book as not even the best matchmaker. Yeah, they, they say, oh, there's this other one that's been around way longer. <laughs> she's uh, also a she's, secret matchmaker, which I thought yes! was interesting. Like, <laughs> the women in the town... Important all know who she is and what she does, but it's a secret from all of the men to the extent that she doesn't even tell like her friends and family what she does for a living. Or I guess her family knows, but like all of the men in town are not allowed to know because apparently they, I don't know, it, it would be bad if they like had some sort of say in their own love lives. <laughs> it is non-consensual matchmaking. It's really bizarre. <laughs> so I, I have a theory that this is like the town in Footloose, there's no dancing. Mm -hmm. You are not allowed to marry somebody unless that marriage has been set up in this town. All marriages are compulsory in this little town. It just, and cowboys must be gazelles in this world. Because they're just like, <laughs> the whole thing is you have to stalk the cowboys around when they come into the diner and then arrange a meet cute, which is exclusively you dropping something. Yes. That happens <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. That's how you do it. You drop a box, you get a husband. <laughs> okay, that worked for me, to be fair. Uh, also, the feed store. Don't forget the feed oh, store. Oh, yes. So, just on its face, what a bizarre premise. Like, it's incredible that she is. she's a secret non-consensual matchmaker. <laughs> she exclusively traffics in cowboys because that's the only type of man that exists in this entire town. And the word traffic, I think, is very apt there because it, it, the way that she approaches this and the way they talk about the men in the book is, like, tantamount to human trafficking. It's like every woman needs a cowboy. She finds cowboys and assigns them to the women. Basically sells them <laughs> off. Like, it's very I, she has little one sheets of information she's assembled from Google about that's them. That's right. Like, that's right. I, th I thought the auction scene was a bit much, <laughs> but th I got to say this. Thank God everyone was white. Thank God everyone was white in this book. <laughs> Just cowboys in cages being sold. It would have gotten problematic. <laughs> I thought it was interesting they just did it at the cattle auction. So they auctioned off all the cows and then just sold the cowboys along with them. <laughs> uh, 5,000 head and two cowboys was a good deal. <laughs> okay, so Evelyn Foster is a small town matchmaker. She lives on a ranch with her sister, with her many sisters. I couldn't count how many. It doesn't matter. It won't come up again. Several sisters. I know there's Callie and a couple others, but I only remember Callie's name. Simone was the arty one. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really difficult. We'll get into it. It's really difficult to tell all the siblings apart here. And she has inherited this ranch and they take care of the ranch, but her father's still alive and lives in town with her grandmother. But only the sisters live on this ranch. And so business is bad for her, but... Someone buys the ranch next door, and that is Rhett Walker. Sarah, who's Rhett Walker? Rhett Walker is the cowboy deluxe of this town. Mm, I think, yeah, I think they, right. they measure people by, like, the size of their cowboy hats and the size of their belt buckle, and he has a large cowboy hat and a large belt buckle, so 
that makes him like a first class citizen apparently <laughs> you know what that means yes I, I'm, I'm avoiding the obvious joke here i didn't they do within like two paragraphs of, of introducing him they point out that he has big hands so they're not being too subtle about it um yeah. but yeah he's he's described as this dark mysterious cowboy he has a secret he refuses to date but we don't know why um, and so Evelyn immediately falls for him, which she does by literally just standing and staring at him unblinkingly for like yeah, 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to do, we're going to start the plot now. Rhett Walker moves into town. He is a cowboy billionaire because his father has sold a technology company and he and his brothers have inherited the billions. His father has fucked off to the Caymans to live with, the, with his wife, which makes way more sense. <laughs> but four of these brothers are moving all together, they have billions of dollars, and for some reason, they are all conglomerating into one ranch in the West Texas Panhandle, where all billionaires want to live, let me tell you, having been the West Texas Panhandle. That, <laughs> that is basically middle America, little St. James right there. It is, it's, where, it's where the rich go, they hang out. And so he moves into town just as a tornado hits, and he is forced into a shelter where he meets Evelyn and... She proceeds to just stare at him for minutes and they fall in love. Because that's how it works. She yeah, didn't drop yeah. anything though, so I'm not sure how they got together. <laughs> uh, there's a recurring theme in this book where when a woman feels any sort of romantic feeling, she loses the ability to speak or breathe. Mm -hmm. uh, there are just <laughs> multiple times where Evelyn is rendered breathless or speechless, basically just because she, you know had a, a romantic fleeting thought it's a really weird i don't know maybe i'm reading too much into it but just women are constantly silent by falling in love in this story it's like bizarrely asthmatic and its approach to love yeah. it's love in the age of corona everyone's just dealing with shortness of breath yes <laughs> and so i i want to read a little description here there in the tornado shelter uh our author writes he bore a strong jaw and dark eyes, exactly the kind of man Evelyn would be interested in. You know, if she wasn't already dating someone. Oh, I forgot That's this. That's right. Okay, so it's important to say they meet, they have a meet disaster. He leaves, they, they, they just, their, their pulses are racing the entire time, but not because of the tornado tearing down homes or, and probably killing poor folks in this town, but no one cares about them. And... Then it jumps ahead like six months later. Yeah, we don't so need to actually, actually get to know the characters. We don't need to see them no. like get to know each other or fall in love. Like, let's just skip all that. <laughs> yeah, they jump directly from like the meet cute to like these two families of sisters and brothers just share life together. Yeah. Like they're having communal meals. Yeah, they're best friends. And so we jump ahead six months, but Rhett is... Rhett is in love with her, but he is suspicious. Quote, he hadn't bought this ranch out in the middle of nowhere to get his heart, heart broken again. He'd managed to do that in Austin, thank you very much. So Rhett is a man with a dark past and secret, apparently, who is running away from it with his billions. And then he becomes best friends with... Evelyn over the course of a year that we don't see yeah we just cut straight to them being best friends already clearly pretty much in love with each other but we miss all of that part I think what's amazing is that you have these two like the entire premise is fallacious so she's single she's been single for months they're best friends they have 
breakfast every Tuesday morning. He kisses, he mentions that he like kisses her and touches her all the time, but he's like, she's not interested in me. So apparently he's sexually harassing her. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a particularly weird line, um, where they say something about he's, he's kissing her and within the space of like two sentences, it goes from describing it as like a romantic thing to he's her friend to it's a fatherly kiss. And the combination of those things in that tight of a space was very unsettling to me. (laughs) It's very weird. But, like, I'm sorry. I don't believe two people. He's in his 40s. She's in her late 30s. Are hanging out all the time, both in love with each other. She, quote, had a Texas-sized crush on the man. And are just like, no, we don't want to be together. I think bringing up their age is really interesting because this whole book reads like they're in their early 20s and it doesn't come out until relatively late. They're like, these people are almost 40. (laughs) Yeah, I think Evelyn is like 39 going on 40. Rhett is 43. Mm -hmm. So they're old enough to know better with every choice that they make in this book. They're more awkward than 14-year-olds. And like, it's so, so odd that they both are constantly pawing at each other, spending all this time together in love with each other and don't want to be together. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Here's the problem. Yep. Let's get to it. Evelyn is single. And so consequently, no one will use her matchmaking services. She has no money. She's the Her matchmaking service is explicitly stated as the primary breadwinner for her and her sisters and their ranch. Mm-hmm. Her secret spy network. <laughs> <laughs> And so, what is she going to do? Where is she going to get money? So she asks Rhett, will you fake marry me? We don't have to be really married, but will you fake marry me so I can pretend to be successful at love, so therefore I can continue to matchmake and make money? She asks the billionaire. Well, and it also, the whole fact that she feels the need to do that speaks a lot to this community. Like, the women in this town are so judgmental and so happy <laughs> to each other. And there's this idea that like, oh, well, she's single. So now everyone looks down at her and thinks that she can't do her job. Like she, she's so concerned that because six months or a year has gone by and she hasn't managed to like match up all these cowboys with other women that she's a pariah now. And you have to be married in order to be like a real person in this town. Yeah, look, Yentl wasn't out there slaying dick, and she still managed to match up people, okay? Exactly. Uh, uh, no, I'm just going to say, this is just true to the South. <laughs> <laughs> no, one of my favorite little details is when she goes out with Rhett for the first time in public, and we'll get to that, but a woman basically texts her and yes. is like, good she luck keeping it, bitch. <laughs> no, I, I wrote down the lines because I thought they were so weird. Let me see if I could find this. Um... One person says, let's see if you can keep this one. And another says, I give it two weeks, just like the last guy. And these are things that they're texting her. Like, they're not, this isn't a conversation (laughs) that she overhears behind her back. Like, they're typing these words out and sending them to her. Like, who are these people? No no wonder they need matchmaking services to end up with cowboys, because these people are terrible. No wonder they need to trick people into marrying them. (laughs) Exactly. So... This is the whole premise of the book is 
she needs to be able to make money because mm-hmm. their ranch doesn't make money. Yep. Uh, this is evidently a service that people are willing to pay tons of money for, <laughs> despite the fact that the town is 17,000 people and everyone already knows each other's business anyway. Like, <laughs> constantly, everyone knows where everyone is, and yet somehow she's been able to make, like, a full-on, not just a living, but a living that can support her and her sisters by getting texts from butchers when cowboys show up to get meat. Like, like <laughs> No, I mean... I think Sarah really hits it. It's it's basically the unstated sort of uh, part of this is that cowboys are like uh they're like NPCs in a video game butting up against the edge of the world. And so like they they have no agency. There is no brain in their heads and she's just trying to steer them towards the women. She says multiple times her job is to get cowboys out of the way of themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They men just have to get out of their own way. That's the idea. Yeah. Well, uh and it, at one, early on, there's uh, a woman is complaining to her that a cowboy wanted to take him on a, take. Excuse me, a cowboy wanted to take her on a date to the big box store. Because <laughs> that's the thing that people do. <laughs> also, who calls it the box store? It's the Walmart, lady. Yeah, I thought that was strange too. Just like the the intentional vagaries of this. Like she's name checking soda brands throughout mm. this story, but mm-hmm. she can't say Walmart. Uh, but so, yeah, she asks Rhett to marry her. <laughs> but not really. Yeah, fake marry her for money, <laughs> but not his billions, which she then <laughs> proceeds to immediately lavish on her. Because, let's get to this part, he says yes! Within, he takes like one minute to think about it, and then he's like, yeah! okay, let's do this. <laughs> okay, so... I think there's a couple things to get into here. <laughs> there's so many. Rhett is in love with her. Mm-hmm. Rhett apparently is described as a cowboy male model. With mil- he, that, that phrase is used later in the book. He has billions of dollars and he's hunky and good looking. And every, every woman's favorite age, 43. Everyone knows that. And for some reason, he is just, like, scared to ask this woman who eats with him every day out. Like, he's in love with her, and he just is afraid of women because of something dark and deep that happened to him in his past, like Christian Grey. Uh, And he just, he, he has no confidence whatsoever. So he is just like, I love this woman. Maybe she'll deign to hang out with me, a cowboy model billionaire, if I agree to marry her instead of just offer her millions of dollars outright. Well, nobody in this book knows how to communicate. Like they can't tell each other that they like each other. They all have secrets from their friends, their families, from everyone. Nobody in the town can just go and ask someone out. They have to, like, elaborately, you know, <laughs> orchestrate this elaborate scheme where a woman shows up at the same time as a man at the post office and drops boxes. Like, nobody can just say what they're thinking. It's like a quiet place if the monsters were attracted by truth. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty good. I also think this might take place in the Twin Peaks universe. <laughs> yeah. Because there's kind of some elements of, like, the Twin Peaks town. The way people just sort of, like, go to dances all the time. Yeah. And, like, and go drink soda. Like, talk about their so- Yeah, and talk about their soda order at, like, fucking length. Oh, yeah. Nobody drinks any alcohol for the duration <laughs> of this uh, book. Like, it never even comes up. Nobody's even like, oh, no, sorry, I don't drink. Like, these are just soda pop swilling cowboy billionaires. <laughs> you know. So there is a problem, though, Sarah. Why is Rhett concerned to tell his family 
that, that his brothers, <laughs> that his billionaire brothers that he lives with, that he would be marrying the beautiful woman he's in love with. Well, Red has a problem because he and his brothers have a pact, which they literally <laughs> call a pact. They have a pact that they are not allowed to date. Because <laughs> apparently all of them at some point have been jilted at the altar. Like they all have the exact same backstory. And so they've come to this town to make a fresh start. They made an agreement. We're just going to be like 40-year-old brothers living together, not allowed to date, totally normal. And so if Rhett breaks ranks and actually goes out with a woman, then he's afraid of pissing off his brothers. Which, to be fair, he is right to be because they are super mad at him for most of this book. No, Jeremiah at one point physically, basically, physically threatens him. It is like... And they're afraid of Jeremiah. They talk about Jeremiah constantly. Like, oh, Jeremiah's the bad boy. Jeremiah is the only one who has like a brain in his head because he's the only one who points <laughs> out, like, do you have a prenup? Do you know if this woman yes! is after you for your billions of dollars? He says what that. nobody else will say. They go to the courthouse, get married, no prenup <laughs> for the billionaire. For the fake marriage. <laughs> yes. But I just, I still, I want to go back to the pact for a second. I just, I'm obsessed with the pact. I'm obsessed that, like... Zach, we've had this pact for, like, five years. <laughs> and you broke... I'm still mad at you. I just, I'm obsessed that, like, there's these apparently beautiful group of wealthy men who want to go live in the Texas Panhandle, a place I have been where it's 120, and the only company is oil derricks and, and, and drug runners. Like, it's an unpleasant place, and they don't even have much staff. They, do, they take care of the ranch by themselves. They're constantly doing manual labor, these billionaires, and they all live in one house, and it's just, it's so so strangely chaste and homoerotic at the same time <laughs> yeah can we can we talk about the money that they have for a second because they yes. so they inherited this from their father who mm -hmm. is still alive so he presumably has his own billions that he and his wife are off like spending in the caribbean then mm -hmm. there's seven brothers who all have billions plural so, I mean, this family is literally one of the richest families in the world, and Absolutely. nobody cares. Like, they don't... Nobody even knows! Yeah. They act like it's, like, I don't know, the upper middle class family who, like, drives a Lexus instead of a Toyota. Like, that's what that it is, is exactly treated how as they're treated. community. Well said. But it's not, like, if these were real people, they would have security guards everywhere they go, like... They would be running charitable foundations and, like, managing their money full-time. They'd be on the Lolita Express. Yeah, they'd all be pedophiles. It's mandatory at that wealth level. Yeah, you're issued your card, man. It's 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 uh, And it's a Boy Scout one. No, it, it treats billions like millions in a really weird way. Mm -hmm. Also, his dad got rich, or their father got rich, exclusively off making a tiny camera. That is the one... <laughs> Thing that he ever gets name checked, he's like, no, 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 but it was like really tiny though. But it's a and that was enough camera. to turn him into Bill Gates equivalent wealth. They do say that he sold these cameras to, I think, the government and the military. Oh, so, good. Um, let's let's not delve too deeply into what they might have been used for, but we'll just go ahead oh, yeah. and spend the money. So, so this man is essentially a war criminal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you know all those Saudi drones over Yemen? That's the walkers. That that those are their those are their cameras. Totally wholesome. 
I what I love about this book is it tries so hard to create this pastoral vision mm-hmm. of you know of the South of Texas of cowboys, and in doing so, it just becomes unendingly more bizarre and weird at every turn. <laughs> like in its attempt to create this normalcy, it it just can't help but trip over itself into like weird like brotherly celibacy packs and like <laughs> and like a town full of like hyper intense women that are stalking cowboys at every turn and 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 showing up to diners like just to watch a, a man eat an omelet like it it really the only places these people go are like the diner church and dances that's it that's the entire <laughs> town which I think may go back to what we were talking about earlier with marketing and trying to market something that's being like pure or for the Christian community. Like if they, sure, there are Christians who drink alcohol, but there are some segments of Christians who don't drink alcohol for religious reasons. So they have to sanitize this so much that they can only appeal to like the lowest common denominator. Like everything has to be totally pure, totally chaste, because they're afraid of, you know, angering someone or turning someone off by having, you know, some little element of real life that's not part of their viewpoint. No, 100%, which gives this book a really interesting sort of like coded sexuality Mm -hmm. because there's a a lot of quivering, there's a lot of breathiness, (laughs) there's a lot of like, I was actually really surprised, not to jump ahead, maybe we'll cut this, but at the point where she actually says like, yeah, we fucked, like we made love. No, I actually think we will, I think I want to get into that later. Yeah, yeah, But Because I think we should do the sexuality, but as a separate segment. Okay, okay. So they get married. So they get married at the courthouse with one sister there, and I think... That sister knows it's fake, but no one else does. Yeah, everyone else just thinks that they like fell in love and got married. And I, the app, the secrecy has to be absolute. So, but well, I, I, I think actually, it's so like they get married, they've gone on some dates. We find out about his dark past, and apparently, the entirety of his dark past is that he got engaged, and they were engaged for a couple years, and he realized that she wouldn't marry him. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it. To the point where I finished the book and came out and was like, Zach, what was his dark secret? <laughs> like, I genuinely did not catch that that was what they meant. Yeah, it was it was confusing to me, too, because they mention it in, like, one line, and they don't explain, okay, well, what actually went wrong in this relationship? But they make such a big deal of it in the plot, and it's enough of a driver in his life that he enters this celibacy pact with his brothers, <laughs> but they, they don't really <laughs> justify it at all, so it was very bizarre. Yeah, at one point, they're talking about before, right before they get married, and he says, I've, "He's she's talking about the wedding," and he goes, "I'm a man. I've never thought about the wedding, bitch. You were engaged. You have a celibacy <laughs> pact with several other billionaires." <laughs> Let's be honest; it's an incest pact. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has to be implied. I, there's no way to read this in any other way that these brothers are quivering behind closed doors. It's like Brokeback Mountain, but with incest. Hmm. I'd watch that. Hey, uh, it's Billion Back Mountain. <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, to the Googles. Just kidding. Um. <laughs> uh, also as such, so they get married, but I kind of want to briefly say he has one other quality. He is apparently some kind of a veterinary forensic investigator, and it is there's about six sentences that touch on this the entire time. Yeah. But he is a billionaire cowboy with a dark past who also occasionally takes cases for the state as a veteran, specifically veterinary forensic investigator. 
and it's just in the background. Sarah, do you have any? Is there any? Can you explain this to me? You're a you're a, you're an author. You're a novelist. You're a famous person. Help me understand. It felt to me like something that the author like heard about at one point or was googling like what jobs do people do in texas or something and was like oh veterinary forensic investigator or whatever like (laughs) let me just throw that in there but not really bring it into the story at all and it was like i was intrigued by that i was like what is this what does he actually do it sounds kind of cool but we never actually get to see it at all (laughs) and it seems like sort of a hobby almost like clearly he doesn't need to do it for work he also spends a lot of his time working around the ranch we never really see him doing his job and yet he (laughs) describes it as like a full-time job so i was confused by that it's his whole relationship with work is very strange because he, he is a billionaire and as such, he should be indolent. That's like, <laughs> that's what you should do. You should sit around and have people feed you grapes. Uh, but instead, he's like taking calls from the local sheriff and he's like sighing at his cell phone. Like, <laughs> oh, got another, got to get another dead horse to go look at. Like, and and then he works for free for the sister's ranch. That's the can, other thing he does a lot of. Can we talk of. about that is so strange. Like he helps move couches. He helps them with the ranch. And it's like, but dude, you're, you have built, your time is worth it so much. Why are you not just hiring 17 other cowboys to do this? Well, I think it was such an attempt from the author to make him seem like he's kind of modest and like, oh, I have all this money, but I'm not going to lavish it on myself. I'm not going to be flashy. Like I'm still going to work for a living, but why like you're just he he literally it says at some point in the book he basically just saves his money he sits on it you have billions of dollars like you don't need to spend it on yourself you could do so much good in the world with that and you're just sitting on it and that's supposed to be like noble and relatable Mm -hmm. i don't know it was it was like this weird attempt to make him seem like oh well he's yeah he's a billionaire but he's also grounded and he's moral but it just comes off as very unbelievable and also kind of stupid on his part frankly I'm actually offended by it more as a poor person. Like, here's the thing. If you're a billionaire, you're evil and you shouldn't yeah, exist. There are no ethical billionaires, I don't, for it's, sure. It's bad. We should get rid of them. Blah, blah, blah. However, I'm more upset that you just think it's cool to hoard your money and live like my granddad than, it, it, than, than like actually using it for like dope private jets and shit. Yeah, dude. You should be the Tiger King. You should own all the tigers. <laughs> you can just have tigers. Them. Yeah, exactly. It's a tiger ranch. That would be a much better story. Uh, yeah, at one point he name checks God in this, and he's like, "God oh, yeah. gave times. me this money to use it for good," but he never does any good with it. He only lavishes it on himself and the people around him. Like at no point is he like, "Uh, you know, I'm just gonna like." do something good for the world with there, these billions. There's not even the Gates Foundation, which is 100% a front for all kinds of awful things. But I just want to say, the Gates Foundation does evil shit. However, he doesn't even have a front. He isn't even like, yeah, I set up a school for bilingual kids. There's like, which by the way, in fucking West Texas, there would be. No, there's none of that. Like, he he only hoards his wealth. He doesn't even have fun with it or do good with it. It's so strange. Well, and the book is almost ostentatious in like how it approaches being noble about wealth. Like mm-hmm. they, they go to great lengths to show that Evelyn does not want Refra's money. She's not interested in that. She just wants to live like a normal, humble life, take care of her family. But like realistically, I mean, she would think about the fact that she's marrying a multi-billionaire. <laughs> like she <laughs> never reconciles at all with the, the way that her life would change under those circumstances. Like it... It's this weird tension between 
wanting to promote the fact that he's a billionaire, putting that in the title of the book, making that like the pitch of the story, but then also being like, oh, but we're not going to talk about that. Like, we're not really allowed to think about it. You know, I, 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 and I, I spent some time thinking about it. And I, ha- I think I have a thesis on the billionaire of it all. Because, and jumping off your idea that I think, firstly, this is a woman who's never encountered or even really researched much about the hyper-wealthy, uh, the, the sort of the, the townie who has a bigger house on the hill and, and drives a Lexus, I think is a good comparison. And so I think what that means for this book, billionaire doesn't mean anything materially. It, what, it's just a title. It's like Esquire or doctor, or pastor. Lord. It's yeah, Exactly. It's just something that makes him cool and desirable. Yeah. It's not meant oh, to be a literal billionaire. Oh, very much not so. Like, billionaires don't all live in one house together. There's not... <laughs> they, they, that, they, 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 that's not it, how it it's works. It's like she's never watched Keeping Up with their Kardashians. When they all get famous, they all get their own shit, and they don't hang out anymore. It's like... But you have to live together so that you can keep tabs on each other dating. Like, how <laughs> yeah, else are you so going to enforce can... the pact? Bang on the walls and be like, stop it. The brothers do nothing but talk about not fucking women. That is all they talk about. I mean, to be fair, I went to youth group. There's, like, there's weird. It's, I don't, it's weird because there's, on the one hand, the men are portrayed as this like very hyper-masculine, like they're all six feet tall, solid muscle, like they just eat red meat all day. But then there are also these scenes where they're literally like the golden girls eating cheesecake in the kitchen talking about men. Like they sit around making Sundays, talking about relationships. Like the, when they actually interact, they act very kind of feminized. That is so true because he comes back from his first date before they get married. And one of the brothers has stayed up to wait and talk about it. He's like, guess I got to put the kettle on. And they spent <laughs> yeah. basically her up all night talking about it. Dish girl. That is where we are going to leave part one of Christmas Brides for Billionaire Brothers. Sarah will be back next week to finish that up as well as tell us a little bit about her own work. But I wanted to tell y'all that right now you can go follow her at Sarah Archer M on Twitter or check out her website, SarahArcherWrites.com. Her book, The Plus One, can be found everywhere good books are sold and also the internet. So please go check that out. It is the first official Shitty Christians recommended book. So take that, the Bible. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and if I can leave you with two things, it's dismantle capitalism from the ground up and rate and review us on iTunes. Because I wanna be a cowboy, baby, with a top left and the sunshine shining. Cowboy, baby, with